0: If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. Last week we looked at the very famous and very dearly loved passage about the woman taken in adultery. And I mentioned to you that that story, along with the last part of chapter 16 of Mark, are two large passages of 10 or 12 verses that are actually not found in the oldest manuscripts of the Bible. Um, There's nothing in it that does not look like Jesus, does not, in in no way does any doctrine change at all. Um, But it it is one of the decisions that you have to make even whether you preach that because to know that everything in the Bible is completely inerrant no, in no way is there any error there at all. You can absolutely stake your life on what the Bible says. Um, the problem of this passage, and that they remember in the 5th century when you started seeing this in the scriptures, they put it all kinds of different places. They put it in Luke. They put it three or four places in John. The problem of putting it right here at the beginning of chapter 8 is it breaks up. It breaks up a discussion that Jesus is having with, with the opponents of, of his gospel. The Pharisees are, have attacked him, and he's in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. You see that the Feast of Tabernacles happens in October, and all of Chapter 7 and all of Chapter 8 is happening there in the Feast of Tabernacles, it, whether it's in one day or two days. The whole feast only lasts a week, and he doesn't even come until the middle of the feast so we see that this possibility that chapter seven and chapter eight are within a few hours of each other maybe the chapter seven is in the afternoon and chapter eight is in the evening time but all of this is together so it's it's very important that you kind of see the entire argument of both chapter seven and eight all together the the statements that jesus is making he makes two main statements in chapter seven his main statement is any of you who are thirsty come to me." That he is setting himself up as water for a soul that's thirsty. That if you are that you are thirsty and you know you're thirsty, you come to Jesus. He's inviting you to come. In chapter 8, his big claim is that he's the light of the whole world. And they're not just statements that he could have made on any day. He's making them here because of what everybody is seeing. the During the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole Feast of Tabernacles, a tabernacle is a tent or a booth. It's also called the, tea, the the Feast of Booths. Everybody goes outside and they live in shelters. They build lean-tos. They build it out of cardboard or they build it out of palm fronds or they, they build it out of sheet metal or just... Basically just a, like a lean-to, like a tent that you would sleep in. And the whole country sleeps outside for a week. I'm sure it's a party. Uh, the whole place in Jerusalem is as packed as it could possibly be. It's, it's crammed with people. And there are two main ceremonies in the Feast of Tabernacles. The, whole, the reason why everybody lives in tents or in booths is because it's a commemoration of how God led them through the wilderness. They were not. They did not have a home to go to. They didn't have a house to go back to. They they lived in booths. They lived in shelters. And God led them through the wilderness 40 years. Chapter 7, we saw that, that they had a ceremony where they would take, every day, they would take water out of the Pool of Siloam, which is on the side of the city, and they would parade it through the entire city. And they would have a huge procession with this water. And they were... They were telling themselves that God had provided them water um, and there were all of the Bible verses that essentially point to Jesus Christ is the ones that they, that they showed. And as they come into the temple complex, they, they bring the water up to the altar in front of the temple and they pour it out to God. Now what they're doing is saying, God, you provided for us in the past and you can provide for us now. You can rain on our crops. We live in a very dry place that we're always begging you for water. And if you provided for us in the past, you can provide for us now. Jesus stands up and shouts in a screaming voice, any of you that are thirsty, you come to me. I'm the only one that can slake your thirst. I'm the one that can quench your thirst. If you have a thirst, God gave you that thirst. And you're looking for a way that you can be satisfied. And there is no satisfaction other than me. When we get into verse 12, he stands and gives his second statement, and that is, I am the light of the world. We'll read in just a moment. Um, The light of the world is based upon the ceremony in the evening time. What they did is you had three huge courts in front of the temple. You had an enormous court on the outside called the court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus took cords of of rope and and pulled out the money changers. They are in chapter 2 of John. That was all in the court of the gentiles then you go through a gate and only jewish people can go through that gate men and women and that second court was called the the gate of the women the court of the women and men and women both were welcome there and then you went through a third one and only the priests could go into that so really it was the court of the women that where most of the Jews would press in, because this was as close to God as you were allowed to be. You had to be a priest to go further, and everyone was allowed to be there, and it was jam-packed. So this is where we are. We are now in the court of the women, and we'll see that, that it mentions that in verse 20, and this is God's word starting in verse 12. We're in chapter 8. Thus spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, Thou bearest record of yourself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and and whither I go, but you cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. You judge after the flesh, I judge no men. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, and no men laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again to them, "I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and ye shall die in your sins, whether I go, you cannot come Whew. this is this is serious the the tension is growing and escalating, the animosity is escalating, and so all of this meanness all this nastiness all of this in your face quality of this passage is all based upon something that that where Jesus makes one sentence he stands up and says i am the light of the world and that statement infuriated these people because they knew what he was talking about and they were mad as as hornets they could bite nails because of what he had said now, you think of it as being such a beautiful thing. I'm the light of the world. How in the world could you take offense at that? Well, it really depends on what is built in the Bible in front of it that these people understood what he was making claim to. So why did he say it now? If he, if he, said, if he stood with a great voice and said, Come to me, any of you who are thirsty, he was doing it while they were bringing water into, the, into the, the temple and pouring it out as a drink offering to God. That's when he said it. I am the only water that you could possibly need, the only one that will truly satisfy. I'm the living water. So there was a ceremony that Jesus was alluding to that people were watching it in their face. They could see it out of their eyes, and Jesus' his message was timely. His message was suited to what they were looking at. They recognized they had just heard the Bible being read, they, they saw what was happening in front of them, and Jesus said, it's about me. This is about me. Well, the very same thing is happening here. So in the court of the women, the reason why you know it's in the court of the women because it said he was in the treasury. The treasury is where the, the, the Hebrews would bring their offerings, and there were 13 receptacles for the offerings in the treasury. So you had the the place where the widow put her two last coins. That's in the treasury, and so this was in the in the outer court, and they looked like trumpets, and there were 13 of them spread around the the place, and they were for various things. They 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 bought they bought things that the priests needed, or they had the general uh, fund for the upkeep of the temple, or for the ministry of the uh, of the the Levites or whatever, all of the things that they needed, and people would put their money in the treasury. And he was standing at the treasury in the, pool, in the court of the women, and it was as packed as it could possibly be. There were tens of thousands of people packed in this place, in this festival. And the lights go down, the, the sun goes down, and what they do is they set up enormous candelabras around this temple, uh, all the way around the square. And there were huge lamps all the way around. Completely the whole square was covered in these enormous lamps. And at sunset, they lit the lamps. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to us. But you have to realize that that was the biggest of big deals because you did not have public buildings that were lit at night. You had to do that. And so they erected these huge menorahs or these huge candelabras and it was all the way around the expanse of this large court and it was a night party, it was a block party, everybody stayed until the wee hours celebrating and there were all kinds of there was singing and music and dancing and everybody was was I'm sure there was a snack table and everybody was just having a wonderful time it was a celebration and what happened is you would go in a a darkened ancient city uh, everything just went dark when the sun went down. You had little little lights everywhere, and now you have everybody in the streets. You have campfires in all the streets, and the whole temple is lit and illuminated. And if Jesus is standing there while they're lighting the lamps, he then shouts out to them the same way. Again, it says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He's he's using what they're looking at to show what He is. And that is is the biggest problem. You see that this is your second of the I Am passages. There are seven in the book of John where Jesus says, I am, and then says what He is. You remember in John 6, uh, we said that He, I am the bread of life, and he that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He already said that I am the bread of life. Just the fact of saying I am was uh, nobody would have done it because the, because the name of God was I am. The name Yahweh or uh, the King James transliterated it into Jehovah. That name, that covenant name, the name that God's people use for God that would never be uttered. They would never actually say it. There is four letters in it and it was never uttered. In fact, when a scribe would write that word in the book, he would take a new pen and dip it into brand new ink and write one letter, and then write an, and then and then make a new pen and dip it into new ink and put it and write the second letter. He would; it was all reserved to completely separate from from everyone. The covenant name of I Am is whatever that's what God said He was. Moses said, "Who who sent me? Who do I tell these people that sent me?" and Jesus uh, and God speaks to Moses and said I am that I am. All it is is just a present tense to be. I am is his name. That's the name of our God, I am. What do you need? That's what God is. God says I am and then leaves it blank. Whatever that is, he is what he needs to be for his people. There is no other way to express God. God doesn't have a name like Bob. Okay? God is is who God is. I am that I am is the only thing he could express. And that's the covenant name. And when Jesus says, I am, okay, ego eimi," me, I am. That is all he is saying. He is claiming to be God. And these people instantly knew it. But when he makes the second I am statement, I am the light of the world, the, the Pharisees instantly knew what he was referring to because The light was, the light to the Gentiles, the light to the nations, was what the the Messiah was supposed to be. This was what they were looking for. These people had heard 10,000 sermons on the light of the world. And when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was not only claiming to be the Messiah of God, he was claiming to be God. And he was rubbing it in their face, and it infuriated them. So when you look at this passage... Look, put your eye down on your Bible. It just says 12. You think of it as so sweet. Then all of a sudden they're mad. In verse 13, they're, they're angry. How did that make him angry? I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And they were fit to be tied. They were foaming at the mouth because of what he said. Because they, they were, he was claiming. To them it was blatant blasphemy. Blatant. They needed to destroy this man. But this problem, Jesus takes it further. Jesus, Jesus escalates the animosity. He doesn't ever back up. He, When he makes animosity, he makes it even worse. Now, you remember he didn't even come to this festival until middle of the way through the festival because, because he cannot die too soon. He is going to die six months after these events. On the Passover Friday, that's when he's going to die. And he will not die before because that is when the Passover lambs were going to be sh- uh, slaughtered. And God insists that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So he will. Like, they tried twice in chapter 7 to, to, to arrest him. And they're going to try once in chapter 8 to arrest him. And they can't. Because there's, they can't take him because it's not his time. So when he claims to be the Messiah, he is the light of the nations. This is from mostly from the book of Isaiah. This is chapter 9. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light shined. So we're starting to see in Isaiah, Isaiah had a vague image of the servant of God, the suffering servant of God, the Messiah. Okay? This is Isaiah 42. And the Lord, the, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness. He's speaking directly to the Messiah and I will hold thine hand and will keep thee, and I will give thee for a covenant to the people and a light of the Gentiles." Now, the King James uses Gentiles here, but the word is simply nations. I will make you a light unto the nations, to all of the world, to all the non-Jews, to the ones who are not us. Everyone that lives on this globe besides us Jesus will be a light unto them, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, again, this idea of light, to bring up the prisoners of the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So he's, he's toying with these images of being locked up in prison and blind, that there is a lack of light, that there is their eyes to see, but there's no light shining on their retinas, and so they're, they're blocked. And not just blocked, they're they're in prison, That they're in the prison house and they sit in darkness and I have given you as a light of the Gentiles you are going to shine and people are going to see for the first time the same as if there were no light and all of a sudden there is light. If anyone's ever turned the light on in when you're trying to sleep and it just blinds you, you are going to be that kind of light. This is Isaiah 49, and now saith the Lord that formed thee from the womb to be his servant again, talking specifically of the Messiah, to bring Jacob again to him. Jacob is Israel. Though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Okay. Now the Messiah is speaking. And he said, it is a light thing that thou should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee to a light to the nations. I will give thee as a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. So now this is not just light. It's not just seeing what you can't see. But this is rescue, that you're tied up, that, you're, that you are bound and that you are a hostage, and that God is coming as a rescuer, and he will rescue through his Messiah. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Do you see? God is now speaking, you, my light, are going to be hated because you're the light. They're all going to hate you. You're going to be despised. People do not like the light. People run from the light. The roaches run from the light. They hide under the logs, anywhere that it's not shining on them, because that's where they feel safe. That's where they feel protected. They do not want exposed. You are going to expose them. This is Isaiah 60. This is towards the end of his prophecy. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. And here's Jesus as they're lighting the lamps all the way around this plaza. And you can see the lights being lit and everyone's thrilled because the sun is going down and you can see it becoming twilight and they're lighting the lamps and they know it's going to be a party. And Jesus said, I am the light that shines to the nations. I'm the light that shines to you. I'm the light that shines upon your blinded eyes that you can't see. And something is going to happen that causes you to see. As you look to the light, that miraculously you will be able to see what you had never seen before and he was claiming to be the Messiah. And he says, I am the light. And this was more than the Pharisees could handle. They're like, absolutely not. You have to realize that a disbeliever, someone who is a disbeliever, is not someone who has not yet believed. An unbeliever is someone who who is treasuring that unbelief. They've decided what they've decided. They've already made complete and total decision. And there is nothing that can convince them. You cannot convince them by evidence. There's no evidence that they'll accept. There's not enough proof that Jesus was God. Not enough. Though he was raising the dead in their streets, Elijah rose a dead person from, from, the, from his bed today during our Sunday school time. And it was mo- one of the most memorable times of the Old Testament that that would have even happened, that God would raise a dead man to life again. And Jesus is raising dead people in the streets while people are looking. He walks up to the casket on the buyer and he touches the man's hand and he sits up on the casket on the, on the pallbearer's shoulders. And everybody in the whole town saw it at once. We get to chapter 11 and more people are coming to see Lazarus than they are to see Jesus because Lazarus they know were dead. They know he was dead and now he's walking through town among us. And that is why that it had to be now that they killed Jesus during the Passover because it was, had risen to, risen to a pitch that people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They knew that it had to be him because you cannot be that. You cannot, you cannot provide for people, thousands of people at once. You cannot heal every sickness in the entire country. You cannot teach like anybody had never taught before. The, the, the soldiers that they went to get him... In chapter seven, came back and they hadn't caught, captured. And he said, "No one teaches like this man. No one speaks like this man. It, it's like it was like that. They were they were bedazzled. That they were they were under a trance. They couldn't believe that they were listening to their God explain what their lives were supposed to be. And they just they couldn't even take him, even though they had a sword in their hand. They couldn't do it. And but the a non-belief treasures non-belief." There is nothing, no, no evidence. Now, remember in chapter 7, Jesus said, if you, if you want to please God, you hear this, it'll make sense to you. It's someone who wants to serve God. When they hear the gospel, it will make sense to you. It will touch you where you live, and you will understand. You will, you will respond. If your unbelief is because you didn't know, then knowledge can help unbelief. But if your non-belief is because you're treasuring non-belief, there's nothing you can do. It is done. You've already sealed your fate. The last verse of this passage, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. Now, you have to remember that chapter 7 was just probably an hour, two hours before this. And Jesus said, remember, you only have a little while. I'll only be with you a little while. So it's the idea of you still have time. You still have time looking into their hardened hearts. You still have a very little while that I'll be with you. And now it's to the point where it's done. They have sealed themselves forever because they're treasuring that. Okay. So when, when it says that Jesus is the light of the world, he goes on. This is in, in verse 12. Jesus spake unto them, saying, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me. Shall not walk in darkness, that shall have light of life. Because he's not speaking just to the religious leaders. He has a crowd of people around him. There are thousands of people within this, the, the hearing of his voice. Probably within just a few feet of him, there are hundreds and hundreds of people. And he is speaking and he says, Anybody that follows me shall not walk in darkness. So there, this is a light, not just to annoy you this is not a light to make you uncomfortable this is not an a a a spotlight to stop you in your tracks like a deer in the headlights this is a light like a lighthouse to where you move your ship towards the lighthouse because that's the only place there's not rocks that it's a it is an attractive force you follow jesus he is a light to be followed you shall not walk in darkness but shall walk in light this is John sewing his book together. You have to remember at the very beginning of his book, he claims, this is John chapter one, verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of men. It was an attractive, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it, could not comprehend it, could not, could not kick it away. The darker the room, the more a single candle will be pervasive. It's in your face, and he is shining in a dark place. This is the light. Remember, Zacharias just said, and you, my son, will be the prophet of that light to, it, to give them light to sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide their feet into the way of peace. Here is the Messiah, and the Messiah is coming, and Zacharias recognized that his own boy, that, that he had to go mute for a, for a time because he was unbelieving, is now that the whole consummation of the ages are coming and the Messiah is going to be in the neighborhood and that his son will be the prophet of that, of that, uh, that great king. Thessalonians, then Paul, is, is echoing this. He said, you are now belonging to this man. If he is the light of the world, how can there be darkness in me? That's the question I have to ask myself. Why am I dark? If he's the light of the world and I am in him, I am married to him, I am bound to him, we are communed together. How can there be anything not like him in me? And what happens is that there is an irritant in that light Whereas I see myself closer in his light and I recognize it, then I repent of it. Whatever I see in me that's not like God's character, I repent of it. I repent of it whether I have to repent a million times. I repent a million times, and I pull myself away, and I I stop my ears so that I'm not listening to that siren song that's going to lead to my destruction. But I follow Jesus. You follow the light. Thessalonians 5, you are children of light and we're the children of the day, we're not children of the night, we're not children of the darkness. There has to be something true of us because of who we follow. We have to follow it. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's the one that saves me, but he's the one that I go to towards my salvation. I follow him and in my following him, I'm rescued from my sins. I'm rescued from my, from God's offense over my sins that are already done. And another thing that David said, which I've always just fascinated me, such a short little verse to be so fascinating. This is Psalm 36 verse nine for with thee is the fountain of life in thy light. We see light that something allows your light God's light that's in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light to me that lives in this world. As Jesus shines into my life, suddenly something happens to my retinas. My retinas, which cannot absorb light. You could shine light on me all day long and I couldn't see a thing. I would be just looking into nothing. I would be looking into the murky darkness right into the, into the sunlight and could not tell that it was there. My retinas only pick up a very fine sliver of radiation. And when you're blind, that radiation can shine on you, and there's no effect at all. But Jesus shines on me, and suddenly now I can see light. There is a reconstruction that happens to a soul that Jesus shines on. When Jesus shines on you, he brings you to life. You are the light, the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So I can only see that I'm wrong. When Jesus shines on me, then I know. Then I know that I've offended God. I don't know I've offended God and it makes me turn to God. God rescues me and then I know what I've done because I suddenly can see light because in Jesus' light, I can see light. You have to realize that the, that the Pharisees were self-blinded. They blinded themselves. And when you blind yourself, there really is no, there's no cure for that. There is no light that I can see light with. Jesus' light is blinded to you because you've blinded yourself. It says in Corinthians that the enemy has blinded you so that you can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah, who they trusted, said the same thing. This is from chapter 5 of Isaiah. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Welcome to the 21st century America, boys and girls. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, that they take something and they replace the exact opposite with so filthy and so wrong that generations of their grandfathers would look at you and say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Why are you acting this way? You are thinking that right is wrong and up is down and back is front? How? How can you not understand what simple people, even simple sinful people would know is right and wrong? Because you've blinded yourself. And these are the, these are the people that Jesus is speaking to. These are the leaders that are mixed in the crowd. And there are people coming to Jesus by the hundreds in right in front of him. And the, and the religious leaders are sealing their heart off. Remember what he told Nicodemus, this is back in chapter 3, this is verse 19, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds be manifest, for they are wrought in God. It just made them mad. They were, just, they were just furious. So in 13, the Pharisees blast right back at him. The Pharisees therefore said in him, thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Basically they're saying, this is illegal. You can't use this. You can't, you can't make a claim for yourself. You can't say I am, I, this is true what I'm telling you because nobody believes anybody in this world because all of us are liars that's the whole purpose of the law. The law is for the lawbreakers. The law is for the lawbreakers. The law is not for someone like God. The law is for someone like us. I can't trust when two kids tell me the same thing. Two of the sweetest kids in school came up to me the other day with a dispute. I couldn't believe it. I'm talking about the goodies, not the baddies. I've got baddies coming out the ears and these two were sweet and they both claimed to have the same pencil. You had one of the nicest boys in the entire school. And he said, no, this is my pencil. And one of the nicest girls that have never had any problems ever. And she said, he's got my pencil. That's mine. And he said, it can't be yours. This is my pencil. And I just said, I'm like, okay, Solomon. (laughs) So I, I talked to the boy and I said, will you do me a favor? Will you give her your pencil? And he said, but it's my pencil. And I said, will you do it for me? and he just hands her the pencil. And she's like, thank you, that was mine. And she goes and sits down. (laughs) Not kidding, that's exactly, thank you. Finally, I got my pencil back. So I gave him a pencil and I gave him five bonus points secretly because he acted like a gentleman and that is a wonderful thing. When I see that, I'm like, yes, you're gonna be fine. I don't have no problem with you. And there was nothing wrong with her. Both of them wanted the same. The law is for the lawbreakers. The law is not for someone like Jesus. When Jesus speaks, it's truth. So Jesus absolutely can commend himself. He can say for himself. The reason why you have to have two or three witnesses is because all of us will bend the truth. I don't care how sweetie pie you are, you'll bend the tr- you'll bend it to your own. That's the way we are. We're sinners. The law is for sinners. In fact, the law shows us ourselves. That's why it shows us ourselves. The law is for us for that reason. Okay, so. So Jesus said, this is, this is uh, verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whether I go, but you can't tell whence I come and whether I go. <coughs> Jesus got him. I don't know if you caught that. Back in chapter seven, the crowd is like, we know where you're from. We know who your parents are. Remember that? And Jesus, Jesus sarcastically said, you know me and you know where I'm from, huh? Now, you have to realize that there is nobody that does genealogies like the Jews. The Jews do genealogies like nobody. Have you ever read, read the begats? The begats are there because you really do care who your 14th great-grandfather was. It really does matter. Where you are and who you are and all of that, there, there's meticulous records. So when Mary comes to the, to the temple, Uh, to present her offering of purification and then brings him to, to on the eighth day for circumcision, they go to the temple for that reason. They don't live in Jerusalem. They go all the way to Jerusalem for his circumcision. Do you not think there was a rabbi in Nazareth? What they were doing is they were recording his birth, that he was born of David's family in the city of Bethlehem, and this is Jesus and we will reside in Nazareth." This is, we're talking about people who were the highest of the high, who would add access to every record that was possible there, and they lived in town, and not one person among all these years ever explored where Jesus was born. They just assumed it was Galilee. And remember, they even told Nicodemus in the last chapter, oh yeah? You think, do you think he is from Nazareth? Do you think that the Messiah has ever come from Galilee? Are you crazy? You know, one Ph.D. talking to another Ph.D., they haven't even recorded it. Jesus said, oh, you know who I am, huh? That's what he did in 7. Well, this is what he said. I bear record of myself, and I know my record is true because I know where I came from. You don't know where I came from. You never even bothered to see. You already have made your decision, haven't you? But I know where I'm from and where I'm going, but you can't tell where I'm going, and you don't know where I came from, and you don't know where I'm going. You, because you wouldn't even bother finding out where you came from, you don't care where he's going. Interesting too, he was born in Bethlehem and the scribes knew that, that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. They knew they was born in Bethlehem and told the king and then no one even cares. The kings of another country come and tell you that you, your Messiah is born and everyone's like, hmm, and go on with their business. They didn't even care, didn't care enough to even look. You don't even know where I'm from and you don't know where I'm going he knows he's God. He knows he's God. So he goes, he goes on. This is 15. You judge after the flesh. I judge no man. Very interesting because you think of, of chapter five, he's going to come back as the judge. He already said I will come back and judge the living and the dead. This is Jesus, the same Jesus. And he said, I will be judge." God has put all authority into me to judge. He's not going to judge, I will judge. But he just says here in the in three chapters later in the same book, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Well, what does that mean? If Jesus our judge is judging, or not judging us. It's this Paul does it the same. This is 2 Corinthians 5. Very interesting, you look at this. This is this is Paul talking to the church. Wherefore henceforth know we no man, we Know no man after the flesh. We're not judging any man according to the way other people judge. Though we have known Jesus after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. We, all of these apostles, now Paul not being one of them, now he saw Jesus in radiant glory as a vision, but all the, the, the apostles lived with Jesus. They knew him after flesh. They knew him. But they don't know him as a guy anymore. You don't judge someone according to what you see. You don't judge on the outside. You don't judge superficially. How about that? That's probably the best. You don't judge in the church superficially. It does not matter that someone has a certain personality trait. It does not matter if they do X, Y, or Z. It doesn't matter that they do things that you used to think of as sinning. You don't judge them according to what you're looking at. You're judging them, and you do judge each other please judge me. Please judge each other. But you don't judge each other based on what you look like or even the things that you're seeing. You are judging them spiritually. You're judging them by how they, how they respond to God. You know when someone is your brother. You know it. You're not unmistaken. Jesus does not judge like these men are judging. These men who didn't even bother finding out where, he, where he's from, but yet has already determined that he is not the Messiah, though he's raising people from the dead in their very streets. They've decided. So he says, if yet, if I judge, this is verse 16, my judgment's true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. He said, you have to be, you have to be absolutely sure, you know that when the Father vindicates me, when the Father corroborates what I'm saying, you know that it's true. God is not going to corroborate me if I am not saying the truth. I'm only saying the things that I see my Father doing. I am only doing what He is doing. And because of that, I can trust that when I speak, you can depend upon what I say. When you look at the red words, now all words, doesn't matter that Jesus said them. Every one of these words in the Bible, God claims as His. That's why it's very important that we actually know. But, But He... Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, verily, verily, you can depend upon it. It is the same as eternally true. And I, can't, and if I judge, my judgment is true." He already told him in, in chapter five, "I can't do anything of myself. I hear, I judge. My judgment's just because I don't seek my own will. I seek only the will of my Father. So you can depend upon what Jesus said. That's comforting to me. That's comforting." Because Jesus has said some hard things, and Jesus has said some things that the world thinks of as backwards. So when Jesus said, you trust me, and it's fine, and I look, and the mountains are falling in, and they're going to cut my head off in the middle of the town, and I'm like, God, are you there? And you can face even your death. You can face even your death because that word of Christ is truer than true. He will hold your face as your head's taken from your body. He'll hold your head. That's either true or not, but you will never know unless you go to God with the idea that I will please God and then the gospel will make sense to you. But if you've hardened your heart against it, you will hear the gospel hundreds of times and then you will go and die in your sins. That is so sad, that's so sad. Jesus then slams him. He said, is written your law, and interesting, he wrote the law. He's written, your law, that the testimony of two men is true. I'm the one that bears witness of myself and my father that bears witness of me. It was just, it was infuriating. It was just like chapter 5 all over again. He was, he was making himself equal with God. And so he goes on, um, they go on to insult him, of course. Do you, do you not know what to do? If you're losing an argument, you call him ugly. I've done that. Have you too? Ugly. You you don't say that you can argue with what they say. So you just basically attack the guy. And so he says, it says, I bear witness of myself and the father, the bear witness of me. And then 19, what does he say? Then he says, then they say unto him, where is your father? Do you understand what they're saying? You're illegitimate. We all know. We all know about Mary. We all know about your mother. We all know about your father. We all know. And somehow that that will put him in his place and silence him because they don't know anything. They don't recognize anything. Jesus is telling them, you leaders know nothing about God at all. Look at verse 19. Then they said, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would know my father also. That's the strongest indictment in the New Testament. He looked at the religion of Israel and said, You are all apostate. Not one of you are right with God. Not one of you. Your entire religion is apostate. And it has to be gone. And the Romans were God's, God's vehicles to that. That's so sad. That's so sad. But they, they sealed their own fate. Jesus says in 20, these words were, He spoke in the treasury. We saw that already. And then in 21, Then he said it to them again, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. You may seek me, but you will never find me. I I don't even know. I can't even put my mind around what hell would be like. Hell is that idea that you finally know what you need, and it's too late. You know what you need, but you can't do it, and so you hate God more. And you'll hate God more and hate God more and hate God more and know that you need him and you can't have him. And it, it's gone because over the, over the door of hell it says, thou shalt be damned. That's terrifying. It's the always perpetual future because I now know that I need God. I know, now know that Jesus is the light of the world, but my blind eyes were caused by my own doing. And Jesus said, you will die in your sins, and where I go, you cannot come. Now, I just wanted to end with chapter 12 in John. He's going to talk about the light one more time. And this is to his disciples. This is not to the Pharisees. This is to his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, Yet a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you, overtake you. For he that walks in the darkness knows not whether he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be children of light. These things spake Jesus and then hid himself. Walk like children of light. You seek me for who I am. You don't look at the man, Jesus Christ, who's going to be taken from you. You look at me, who is God your need, and you walk in the light as I like. And then John, again, in his letter said, He who walks in the light, even his sins are forgiven. And he has fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. And I just say that that's that's our only hope. We come here to glorify God and to remind ourselves of just what he has spared us from. And to also alert ourselves that we might purify our walks, that we might live in a godly way, that we walk in the light and not in darkness, because we can't be in two camps at once. God expects that of us, but he's greatly honored by his church. Simple and failing and sinners as we are, as we simply look to him knowing that we walk to the light all the way to the last, to the dawning of the day. Amen.